My name is John Sylvester. I'm a reporter with The Age newspaper. Some people call me Sly of the Underworld. There are eight million crime stories in the naked city. And this is one of them. Edward John Eastwood was a crook who hatched not one, but two of the most harebrained schemes in the history of Australian crime. In what's claimed to be Australia's crime of the century, Eastwood in 1972 kidnapped teacher Mary Gibbs and six students from Central Victoria's Faraday School. He was caught and imprisoned. Instead of learning from the experience, Eastwood decided to escape from prison and do the same thing all over again, proving he was both stubborn and stupid. After escaping in 1977, Eastwood kidnapped again. This time, teacher... He escaped from jail and kidnapped nine children and their teacher from the Wareen Primary School north of Leangatha. Eastwood's impending... But this isn't a story about Eastwood. It's a story about the brave and magnanimous Wareen Primary School teacher on the ninth day of the job. This time, teacher Rob Hunter and nine students from Gippsland's Wareen School. The chain that was wrapped around my wrist, if I hadn't have forgiven, it would be like that chain was attached to Eastwood for the rest of my life. It's also about his older student that day, the brave and clear-headed Marie Young. I feel we've got this, yeah, this special bond that nobody else knows what we went through except just us. On Valentine's Day 1977, Eastwood set off a series of almost unbelievable events which affected that class for the rest of their lives. Tell me, Rob, why did you become a teacher? I had a particularly good conversation one day with a teacher that made a massive impression on me. And I was the youngest of five boys. The family farm had three of my older brothers on it. And so yeah, there wasn't any room for me on the farm either. So that was another good reason why I went became a teacher. The oldest of the students at Wareen, a one-room primary school in Victoria's Gippsland Farm District, was Marie Young, who recalls her first impression of the new young teacher. Not too sure about this fellow with whiskers which he told me later on he was advised to grow because it would make him look uh, older because he had a very baby face. And I thought, hmm, don't know, not sure about this. <laughs> How did you feel going in and being the only teacher for nine kids who, who went from what grade to what grade? I had two little grade oneers and the rest were in between and I had three grade sixes. What was it What was it like walking in the first day? Were you nervous? Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, I was on the edge of my seat those first couple of days. I was the headmaster, uh, the only teacher, the only adult. I was the cleaner, <laughs> the bookkeeper. I did everything. That, that was the nature of a one-teacher school, a rural school, quite unique. As a 20-year-old, <laughs> navigating all of those was quite a juggle. But, yeah, very nervous. But, look, the first two days were just so good. The oh, first week really was so good. The kids just ate out of my hand and were so obedient and cooperative and eager to learn. And it was just – it was beautiful. I loved it. Half of the school was my relatives. Sometimes, because uh, I needed a little bit more stimulation, I'd go and sit with the big kids and then we'd do some sort of grown-up stuff. And it was just terrific, really. The kids couldn't have been nicer. The parents were so supportive. 
It's not to say that it was easy juggling nine different learning styles and ages, but yeah, no, really good. So <laughs> day nine was an absolute total enigma. So day nine, you've started as usual, I suppose, and then what happened? Arrived at school as normal and let the children out at 10.30am for recess. Going out to play and being confronted with this man in a balaclava coming towards us with a gun. I just thought, oh my God, what the hell is going on here? You know, I, I froze. The man in the balaclava was holding a gun at the children and shouting. And told us to get back inside and we just did exactly what he said. The rookie teacher at the tiny country school was startled during morning recess when some of the kids ran into the single weatherboard classroom yelling, there's a man outside with a gun. His initial reaction for someone so inexperienced was remarkably calm believing his nine primary school students were more at risk from overactive imaginations than an active shooter. And I didn't think too much of it. I just went to the door thinking, oh, you know, someone wants to shoot a rabbit or the local with a gun that wants to shoot something. Then he saw him, the man in the balaclava, pointing the handgun straight at his chest. I was met by a masked gunman shaking violently a balaclava over his head pointing a gun directly at my chest, uh, panting and agitated, get back inside or I'll fucking shoot you. Uh, I did what he said and the kids were alarmed and we all sat down and, yeah, um, confronting, to say the least. This was no accidental confrontation. I remember not remembering exactly how I got being in the playground into the school again and when I did my nursing and found out about the flight and fight response I thought yeah I think that might have been what happened to me that day I had no recollection of me even getting back inside or how I got there or how I felt I was just suddenly sitting at my desk and just this overwhelming fear of um, something I'd never experienced before. This would begin an agonising and life-altering journey for the young teacher and his students kidnapped at gunpoint and chained together by a prison fugitive who had done this all before. Did he say anything once he was inside? Yeah, he took the centre stage. I had to sit down and shut up, basically. Sit down there, teach. Don't you say a word. Don't worry, kids. I'm not a violent man. (laughs) What a lot of rubbish. Not a violent man, but I just got to take you away for a little while and um, I want some demands met. He tried really hard to be nice to us. He was he was nice. He didn't hurt us and he didn't yell at us. He did try and be nice to us, you know. And even when he had to was chaining us up, he he was pleasant, not unkind, and we weren't hurt or anything like that. In hindsight, thankfully. The kids are looking at me, kids are looking at him, looking at each other, thinking, what the hell? And I'm thinking, my, my, my heart rate, pulse rate's going through the roof, and I'm thinking, oh, well, what, what is going on here? In the next 21 hours, they would experience a car crash, a night imprisoned at a remote campsite, an escape, police pursuit, a shootout, 
and a wounding before they were finally rescued. The man with the revolver and wearing a Collingwood beanie as a balaclava was Geelong prison escapee Edward John Ted Eastwood, who was then 26, who five years earlier had pulled exactly the same crime 270 kilometres away, kidnapping a teacher and six students from Faraday. In that remarkably similar job, Eastwood and co-offender Robert Clyde Boland grabbed a 20-year-old teacher named Mary Gibbs and six students on October 1972. They left a note demanding a $1 million reward in $50 notes and $20 notes. The reward was to be delivered by then Education Minister Lindsay Thompson. The government agreed to pay the money. Thompson, with the million dollars, was driven to the drop-off point by then Assistant Commissioner Bill Crowley, pretending to be his chauffeur-driven driver. Former Premier Lindsay Thompson played a major role in both incidents. He delivered the ransom money in the Faraday case and offered himself in exchange for the children at Warreen. In the back seat was Assistant Commissioner Mick Miller, hidden under a blanket, armed with a rifle. The drop-off and the confrontation didn't happen because Mary Gibbs, a slight 20-year-old, managed to kick open the back of the van where she and the students were being held captive. What would have happened without that bravery? We'll never know, but some police believe they were never going to survive. It wasn't until some couple of hours later that the penny dropped. Uh-huh. I do remember that Faraday that came to me. Okay, this is, I'm in the same boat as Mary Gibbs. But of course, Rob Hunter didn't know that when he was first confronted by the man in the balaclava carrying the gun. He thought it was a simple robbery. I think initially I, I thought, no, nah, this guy's just a bit of a crackpot. Uh, I'll be able to work my way around it because I'd, nothing like this had ever happened to me in my life. I'd always been able to worm my way through things and navigate stuff. So I said to him, hey, I'll write you out a cheque. How much would you like the cheque for? I'm, I'm in charge of the books. No, nah, mate, that's not the sort of money I want. So I just sort of went along with him for this first part thinking I'll be able to work something out, something will come up. But Hunter did his best to protect his students from the spectacularly inept but equally erratic Eastwood, who seemed more interested in headlines than getting away with his idiot crime. He remembers Eastwood as nervous, distracted and sweating profusely when he initially grabbed them. When a grade five girl asked, what's your name? The gunman eventually responded, Ted failing even to disguise his name. What an absolute pickle. But that was part of the gig for Eastwood. He craved the limelight. His planning was so poor that he tried the kidnapping at another school earlier before randomly choosing Hunter's class. His ransom note had the name of his original target, Alambi, crossed out and replaced with Wareen. Trying to remain outwardly calm for the sake of the children, Hunter managed to unplug the electric clock to leave a clue to the time of the abduction. It stopped at 11.10am. Eventually, Eastwood produced a 10-metre dog chain to bolt the kids together. Yeah, so then the chains came out of the bag. And mind you, the gun's always there in his hand. Um, teach, lie down there at the front, and I lay down and he 
chain my hands together and then each of the children were chained along this 10 metre long dog chain basically with padlocks and corresponding keys mind you there's a phone there's a phone in the office and I'm thinking come on we can make a phone call but no he pulled the guts out of the phone and rendered it useless as he made Hunter lie on the floor to chain his wrist one of the grade 6 girls asked Ted what are you going to do with us where are you going to take us how long are we going to be away for when will we get back he answered you'll only be away until I get what I want Don't worry, just do what I say and I won't hurt you. Do anything silly and I'll shoot the teacher. Well, that's a really good way to calm them down. Yeah, so we're all chained up one long line and then chained to the wall while he went and got his vehicle that he'd hidden around the side of the back road. It was a grey Dodge canopy. I can remember everything about that. The grey Dodge is imprinted in my brain, yeah. Eastwood had a sign prepared to give them some breathing space. On a torn piece of cardboard, he'd written, have gone on a nature study trip. We'll be back in an hour. When I saw it, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're in deep poo. We're in parents are going to read this. It gave him an extra hour from any time that anyone arrived. And as it was, people didn't start thinking until 3.30 and he got an extra hour from there. Uh, Police didn't arrive until 10 to 5. Under unimaginable stress, Hunter was angered by the most stupid and trivial matters. It was printed in capital letters. Hunter was furious. No self-respecting primary school teacher would write something in capital letters. How dare you? (laughs) Yeah, impersonating a teacher's beautiful cursive script and uh, appropriate upper and lowercase letters, yeah. I think if you were the judge, you would have given an extra two years for poor grammar. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what did the kidnapper want? His ransom demand was as stupid as his initial plan. In a note to Education Minister and Deputy Premier Lindsay Thompson, his old adversary from Faraday, he demanded the release of 17 of the state's most dangerous criminals, an arsenal of weapons, $7 million in US currency, 100 kilos of cocaine, 100 kilos of heroin, and a late model car with a full tank of petrol. What a cheapskate. With all that, he wouldn't even buy his own juice. Clearly, in the time since Faraday, there'd been remarkable inflation because back then, he only wanted one million. Thanks for listening to Naked City. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, why not give us a super review? And while you're at it, a five-star rating. Still feeling generous? Then subscribe to the Sydney Morning Herald or the age. And that way you can keep the wolf from our door. Growl, growl, growl. Eastwood gagged and blindfolded Hunter before taking his chain gang to his stolen Dodge truck. The kids were put in the back while Hunter was forced onto the front passenger side floor. He yelled at the kids all crammed in the back, you kids keep down when we're passing cars. Keep your heads right down or bullets will be flying. Mam's an imbecile. That was probably the first threat that we had. Yeah, you might get our heads blown off, I think, if we lifted our heads up. So, um, 
we sort of all laid down. Luckily, there was only nine of us who fitted in there quite easily, I think. Separated me from the children, blindfolded me, gagged me, tied my hands behind my back, and I was on the floor, passenger floor, with my head up on the seat, and then off we went along the Grand Ridge Road. Eastwood's plan was doomed from a start. Not only was he a bad kidnapper, he was a shocking driver. Yeah, yep, kids um, vomiting, me vomiting. We were all beside ourselves. He kept yelling out, keep your heads down. If I see you waving to someone, I'll shoot someone. And uh, I thought he was going to shoot me and throw me out of the vehicle. Uh, I thought my life was gone. I thought, these poor kids, what the hell are we going to do here? Well, then the most amazing thing happened. Um, became a game changer. We ran into a, a timber jinker, a logging truck on a hairpin bend. We almost got killed, but this changed everything. Eastwood jumped from his disabled vehicle and took the two men in the logging truck. Don't do anything fucking smart or I'll blow your heads off. So now he's got 12 hostages. The driver of that truck just happened to be Robin Smith, who is the most quiet, unassuming character imaginable, who later on, um, after he'd gathered his thoughts, became a hero. But another truck rolls around the corner and he has to grab the two on board there, bringing it to 14. And then a combi van pulls up with two women who are on a holiday. And he commandeered their vehicle well and kidnapped them. And these two ladies became quite instrumental in looking after the kids and loving them. And I call them angels in the book, beautiful women, Muriel Depardo and Joy Edward. So now he's got 16. Yeah, there's a lot more people there then. <laughs> well, once we hit the truck and we're on the Grand Ridge Road, he took the chains off us and put them on the four men because they were a bigger threat to him than, than we were. So we were released out of the chains, laid on the road for a while, and then when the ladies come in the combi van, you know, we ended up with 16 or 17 of us in the combi van and that was actually much more pleasant. And being with some adults and the ladies who were great comfort to us at the time, that was quite a relief. He's got six, 16 in a van. It's not exactly the yeah, partridge van, it. is it? That's it. That's it. Most people would have given up at this point and just taken the combi van and headed off by themselves or something. But no, he piled us all 16 into that combi van and we thought this is ridiculous. The chain is now used for the five men. The women were allowed to stay free. Threats and promises by the women, they will we'll do whatever you say. They were looking after the kids. The kids were hanging off them, holding hands, hugging them. It was beautiful to watch because I hadn't been able to support the kids at all. I'd been cut away from them. It was lovely. It was quite therapeutic, really, for everybody, those two ladies. Well, they were angels by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we then drove for another two and a half hours to this camping spot that he had set up in the Mullenjung State Forest, not too far from Woodside. Where they share tinned ham and stolen chocolate. Yummy. It dawned on me they were talking amongst themselves, but because I was a fairly astute person at the time, they said, 
this is just like the Faraday kidnapping. I was listening and I thought to myself, oh, I know what's happening now. We're being kidnapped. I knew then from that minute on, I knew what was going on. I'd heard about the Faraday kidnapping and I thought, hmm, okay, right home. So, yeah, we went to a camp that he'd pre-prepared and he told us that he had food and chocolate, which he did. You know, he'd stash this food and that we would be okay. He would look after us, but we might be there a while. So, you know, we slept out in the open. I don't know that I even slept, but maybe I did. But, but yeah, the ladies were, were with us. So hmm. That night, Eastwood openly bragged about the Faraday kidnapping and declared that this time if he was confronted by police, he would shoot it out with them. He wasn't going to go down alone, he'd shoot some of them as well. Hunter said that when the news of the kidnapping broke on the radio, Eastwood was delighted. Clearly he was enjoying the publicity. A megalomaniac with a gun. And, yeah, things were quite calm, and Robin Smith, the truck driver, now tells me, Rob... I was really annoyed with you because you were too nice to this this kidnapper. Eastwood's chatting about what he's done and about the Victoria Police and the Prime Minister, the Education Minister, talking about politics and things, and I'm having a nice conversation with him and Robin Smith is thinking, why are you talking so nicely to this guy? Well, the way it unfolded was Eastwood then relaxed and uh, he went to sleep. In the darkness, truck driver Robin Smith slipped from his chains and crept out of the campsite. Hunter believes that if Eastwood had seen him, Robin was a dead man. He ran 10 kilometres to the nearest farmhouse. This is at around about 4am in the morning and police were alerted. Um, Didn't he have some trouble alerting the people in the farmhouse? Correct, yes. Um, Non-English speaking family owned the farm and um, they weren't too willing to open the door initially and then when they did open the door, didn't understand what Robin was on about. Eventually, one of the children was able to explain to the father what had happened and Robin was allowed to make a phone call. So it's at that point that the police are alerted of a kidnapping? Yeah, that's right. So Robin's made the call. The police quickly come to the farm and pick up Robin and then head towards us in our camping spot. Meanwhile, Eastwood's woken up with Singlet, as he called him. Robin had been wearing a bluey Singlet. Where's Singlet? Don't know. When did he go? Don't know. Oh, hell, hell broke loose again at that moment, and uh, it was pretty scary. He was getting a bit agitated at that stage and was started yelling a bit, you've got to get, get on and get in that van and let's get on with this. Bundled us all back into that camper van, that combi van, and off we set again at a million miles an hour, it seemed, uh, along another little dirt track road. And unbelievably, he headed back towards the South Kippy Highway, which was a bit of a mistake. According to Hunter, Eastwood was holding the revolver in his hand and trying to drive at the same time. Going down this bush track and I saw a police car coming towards us and I thought, yes, this is good, this is good. So, yeah, we got out onto the highway and then, um, yep, 
the police were chasing us and, I, and he just kept telling us to put our heads down otherwise we might get shot. And he asked us for the pepper, kept asking for pepper. Thought he might put the pepper out the window into the police's eyes. But, yeah. Did you hear the shots? Yeah. 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 He was taking pot shots at the police who were chasing them. Gunshots were exchanged. These were shooting at the police, police shooting at our van. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. How close some of these children or us adults came to being shot is anyone's guess, Hunter later wrote. This is Hollywood stuff. Police fired at the tyres, but one bullet ricocheted through the cabin. And eventually the tyre got shot out. and uh, We came to a standstill. Pretty hairy. He, he, uh, he used all his bullets and eventually got out of the van. Eventually, Eastwood was shot in the leg and arrested. Eastwood was pretty lucky that he was only shot in the leg, I think. Not many people who abduct children are allowed to go free when there's a shootout. I just thought, no, this is this is going to be good. We'll, we'll get saved. And, and we did. Mm. When he was hospitalised, some detectives wanted a full story from him. He refused to comment. That is until police helped dress his wound. They put a pillow over his head so he wouldn't scream too loud. A bit of a highlight was that we went to the Wanda Hotels for breakfast. You know, we, we didn't shower, we didn't wash. There wasn't any thought of anything like that, but one of the hotels put breakfast on for us and um, that was pretty good. And we all got to eat something, but we were all filthy, dirty and yuck. And I went then back to the Sale Police Station for most of the day doing statements. Not with our parents, they were still in Lancaster, you know. They weren't allowed to come. Um, yeah. Oh, much later in the day, it was five o'clock or something by the time we got to, um, yeah, get taken in police cars. So that was a bit of a highlight. We've never been in a police car before, so we got driven back to back to the school. And there was people everywhere. We couldn't believe it. Mm thought, what the hell? What's going on here? <laughs> Why are all these people here? It was, um, yeah, helicopters and media. And, <laughs> In a remarkably self-serving book by Eastwood called Focus on Faraday and Beyond, he puts a litany of justifications for what he did, saying at times he acted the goat to make the kids feel a bit more relaxed. How bloody wonderful. You abduct a group of kids at gunpoint and then pull a few faces and think it's all okay. On Monday, November 7, 1977, 38 weeks after Eastwood walked into the Wurreen Primary School, he pleaded guilty in the Supreme Court to 16 counts of kidnapping, three of theft of vehicles, three of using firearms to avoid arrest, one of escape, one of burglary, and one of theft. He was sentenced to 21 years with a minimum of 18 and was released from jail in 1993. An elated Eastwood gave a victory sign as his brother drove him from Pentridge just after 5.30 this morning. He's been paroled under strict supervision after serving a total of 18 years for two of the state's most notorious kidnappings. Eastwood always wanted to be a big wheel. He was a fainter as a crook, but he did have one lasting legacy. He virtually forced the closure of these tiny little country one-room, one-teacher schools because of security.
Rob Hunter's book is a cracker, and it's a story of how someone overcame a terrible, terrible crime. Back then, there was no counselling, no assistance. It was just get back to work and do the best you can. Yeah, well, they talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, don't they? It wasn't heard of in 1977. No counselling, John. No psychs. I went back to school. Actually, my district inspector said, Rob, well done. You can have the rest of the week off. Um, (laughs) So that's, uh, what, about two days? Yeah, that's right. We, the kidnapping happened on Monday morning. We got saved on the Tuesday morning. We eventually got back to school Tuesday evening uh, after being at Sale Police Station all day. And my DI said, Rob, you can have the rest of the week off. <laughs> so I went back to school on the Monday and I kept teaching for the next 35, 40 years. Of the nine kids, how, ma- how many of them returned? Yeah, that's right. Four eldest kids went into Leangatha. Four didn't return to Wurren Primary, leaving him with just five students for the rest of the year. Yeah, I made a decision. I wasn't going back there. It wasn't for me. And my cousin and two of the other kids made the same decision. Yeah, it wasn't, um, wasn't where I wanted to be. And I remember just going back one day to pick up a few personal things, but no, no. Um, yeah, so I went to the um, the local school in Langatha and look, to be honest, you know, that was meant to be. It was for me. It was a turning point in my life and it was really positive, yeah. More than 40 years later, Hunter, now retired, has written a riveting account of this in his self-published book called Day Nine at Wareen. It's his personal recollections of what began on Monday, February 14, 1977. It wasn't until 2016 he decided to put pen to paper, having thought about doing it for years. Hunter has refused to be defined by this kidnapping. Yeah, people say, how do you get over that? Well... I've now come up with a little business called Kidnapped Teacher Talks and uh, I celebrate my health because it's quite a story. I, I was thankful for some a lot of stuff and gratitude's an amazing thing. It changes your mood and uh, I was thankful for Robin Smith. I was thankful for the police. I was thankful that I hadn't done anything stupid. I was thankful that I still had my job and no one had been really hurt except Eastwood. And he, he'd gone to prison, so I was even thankful for that. Justice was done. So I focused on that. But probably the biggest one that helped me get over this whole thing was was I forgave. And that's not an easy thing for anyone to... Uh, understand but it's not saying that it was all right it was never all right it's not saying I'm going to be mates and it's not saying I'm going to forget it but I let go of the the right if you like to stay angry and bitter and resentful and one of the illustrations I use is the the chain that was wrapped around my wrist if I hadn't have forgiven, it would be like that chain was attached to Eastwood for the rest of my life and I'd be dragging him around way down with wanting to get even. But but I let go that that chain was 
released and I was able to get on with my life and I've lived a, a great life, um, married, continue to teach, beautiful kids, lots of involvement in local communities and things and stuff. So if I hadn't forgiven, you know, that would have weighed me down. So these are the sort of things I celebrate in those talks. Releasing the book wasn't just a milestone for Rob. It served as a moment of healing for the whole class. Yeah, that was the turning point, John, for me. And thankfully, Rob decided to write the book. Rob was amazing. And um, I got a phone call from my cousin and she said, oh, Rob's thinking about having a reunion. I go, well, why would you want to do that? Why? I don't think I'll be going. And she kept chipping away at me a bit. She kept asking me a couple of times because she'd met Rob. She said, oh, you should come. And then she texted me the date it was. And I thought, oh, oh, my God, it's 40 years. It's actually an anniversary. And I thought, I don't want to be the only one not there. I need to go. But I didn't want to go. And but my husband encouraged me to go. And he said, look, we'll just go for a little bit. You mightn't want to stay. You might want to come home. I said, oh, okay. That was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and we're all still there at 11 o'clock at night. And I hadn't seen Rob for 40 years and I instantly warmed to him, instantly, and his beautiful wife. You, you said back in 77 the jury was out. It took 40 years for the jury to come back to say he was a good bloke. Oh, yeah, great bloke. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that had been a bit of an issue with me. I thought, oh, I don't know about this. So glad. Rob and Judy are amazing people, beautiful people. Mm. Yeah, and obviously you've read the book. Yeah, I wasn't going to. (laughs) I wasn't going to, but um, I wanted to look up some pictures and I opened the book and I started reading a bit. And, yeah, I ended up sitting there reading the whole lot. Um, yeah, it was well written. It was it was good. But, you know, talking to the other kids and stuff, um, yeah, I'd forgotten little minor details and things and Romeo had a broken nose and that happened in the back of the Dodge truck and I thought, oh, yeah, I've forgotten about that. So, yeah, there was lots of... We all filled in each other's gaps and things that we didn't remember. But I feel we've got this, yeah, this special bond that nobody else knows what we went through except just us. And as a, as a parent, that was probably, yeah, when my kids went to school, that was the hardest the hardest time. Mm. Did you find it hard not to be a helicopter parent with your kids? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Apart from um, I had to apologise for being an emergency nurse, they weren't allowed to have a trampoline, but, yeah, the other side of it too was I've been kidnapped, so um, I have to know where you are. (laughs) So that's um, a couple of apologies to my kids for that. Mm. Rob Hunter's book is a cracker. And it's a story of how someone overcame a terrible, terrible crime. Back then there was no counselling, no assistance, 
It was just get back to work and do the best you can. Well, in more than four decades as a teacher, Rob Hunter did more than that. He overcame terror. I'm John Sylvester. Thanks for listening. This episode of Naked City was written and presented by me, John Sylvester, produced by Margaret Gordon, mixed by Cormac Lally, archived from Nine thanks to Genevieve Caitler. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And a special thanks to Rob and Marie for sharing their stories, proving in this case that good triumphs over evil. Just the way we like it.